You're listening to the King's Church DC podcast. King's Church is located in the heart of Washington DC and exists to make Jesus known in our city through enduring presence that brings personal conversion, purposeful living, and community reconciliation. We hope you enjoy the following sermon. Good morning, everyone. My name is Wesley. I'm one of the pastors here at King's Church, and it's good to see you all uh, this morning as we continue to journey through the book of Acts. We've now been in Acts for quite some time, and we find ourselves in Acts chapter 9. And today's uh, title of this message is The Conversion of Saul. Now, up until this point, we've continued to see uh, the early church. That's basically what we're studying the book of Acts from its conception as Jesus ascends into heaven and sends the Holy Spirit and the church forms in Jerusalem. And then the church grows rapidly in Jerusalem, experiences some mild persecution, but then persecution comes actually at the hand of the gentleman who is the source of this text today, Saul. And we see that in Acts chapter 6, 7, and 8, and the church begins to scatter through this persecution. In the last two weeks, we saw how the gospel is going forth into areas that's never gone before. We saw the gospel go forth to the Samaritans. And then last week, we saw the gospel go forth to the Ethiopian eunuch. And today we find ourselves in this passage, this very familiar passage of Saul and his conversion. Now, I love the unexpected in life. I love things that have just a complete shock value, uh, things that are uh, unexpected, unpredictable, that happen in life. And I'm going to give you two examples, or actually three examples of this, three particular individuals in life who have experienced things that are so unpredictable that they're hard to fathom. Meet our first guy, Roy Sullivan. Anybody know Roy Sullivan? You probably don't. Uh, He was a Shenandoah National Park Ranger from 1942 through 1977. You probably have no clue I'm going with this, do you? He holds the Guinness World Record for being struck by lightning more times than any other person. Now talk about a record you don't want to hold. That's one you don't want to hold, right? He was struck seven times on seven separate occasions. He is nicknamed the Human Lightning Rod. That's what a nickname, right? Uh, statistics will say that the odds of, of any one of us in this room getting struck by lightning are 10,000 to 1. Meaning his odds for getting struck seven times are 1 to 10 to the 28th power, which is 28 zeros for those of you who don't like math like me, right? That is incredible that he experienced that. Now, this other guy, Mike McDermott. Mike McDermott in 2002, of June 2002, an electrician won the lottery. Congratulations, Mike. That's pretty awesome. He chose five numbers and got the bonus ball correct. Well, here's what's crazy about Mike's story, why Mike needs to be a member of King's Church. Four months later, in October, Mike was still playing the exact same numbers and won again with the exact same five numbers and bonus ball. Mathematicians say that the odds of Mike doing this and accomplishing this are one in five trillion. And yet he won the lottery twice, and I believe he still plays it today. I would too, if I was Mike, honestly, right? Uh, Take this one. Our beloved Buffalo Bills fans in the house. (laughs) The Buffalo Bills are the only team to play in four consecutive Super Bowls and not win a single one. How unfathomable is that, Sam Trippy? I'm sorry, I just had to throw that in there because you were talking about the Bills last night. So that's the only reason I chose to do that. Now, I say all these really silly examples for us to really hone in on this text today, that in the text, we find one of the most unexpected, shocking events in the history of the world. 
I mean, it really is. When you think about it, it is so shocking, so unexpected that the, the, the odds makers in Vegas would make it way less likely for this story to be true than the Bills to win a Super Bowl. I promise you that. It is so unexpected, so unlikely, and that is the account of Saul's conversion. This man, Saul, as we've already seen, was one of the biggest rivals, in fact, maybe the biggest rival of the early church, and after this text, he becomes the greatest missionary and theologian of the Christian movement. Absolutely unexpected, shocking, scandalous. In fact, many not only secular historians, but even Christian theologians will say that uh, apart from the historical events of the life and resurrection, death and resurrection of Jesus, the conversion of Saul on the road to Damascus is the most singular event that happened, important event that happened in the early church history. It's incredible. It's unexpected. No one would ever have seen this coming. It's scandalous, this conversion of Saul. Now, I want to just pause for a moment before we get too far, because I've used this term conversion a lot already, and for some of you, that may even make you uneasy. Uh, it, it's a word that a lot of people would say is primitive, it's narrow-minded. Why would you use such a word? We even say in our vision statement that we exist to make Jesus known. In Washington, D.C., that through making him known, we would see people have personal conversion. That means come to faith in Christ, experience the life-changing power of Jesus. But oftentimes, we hear this word conversion, and we think, it sounds forced, Wesley, it sounds coercive. It sounds offensive. Like, like you're saying that what I believe is wrong and I need to change that belief, or you're saying that who I am is wrong and I need to change that. And oftentimes when we think about truth of the Christian faith, and this passage brings out so much of the beauty of truth, it's not necessarily about whether it's ugly or beautiful, but whether it is actually true or false. And what we see happening in this text is something beautiful because it's true. Because God has woven in the fabric of his creation that we need change in life. That if we stay the same, we will regress. We need something to change in our lives. And the pinnacle of that change for us that we see in the Christian faith is that we need to move from spiritual death to spiritual life. And something's got to change for that to happen. Something has to change. Something has to be transformed within us for that to happen. And what we're seeing in this text it is an example of what that looks like. That conversion is that change, that beautiful change that brings us from death to life. And what is true about all of our stories today that we can resonate with this story in the Apostle Paul is simply this, and this is our main idea today, that no one is beyond God's grace. Your story may not be as dramatic as Saul's. It may have been a progression of time over life. It may not have been so sudden and immediately and dramatic as Saul's. But what I do know is this, that all of us can experience the amazing grace of God. That not a single one of us in this room and not a single person in history is too far gone to receive the grace of God. Said another way, Jesus will redeem those who turn to him in faith no matter who they are or what they've done. And this story today teaches us this very valuable lesson. That no matter who we are in this room, you are not too far gone for God's grace to impact your life. And so in our outline today, we're going to see uh, two different parts of this conversion story of Saul. We're going to see how Jesus confronts Saul first in the, in the first nine verses, and then we're going to see Jesus commissioning Saul in verses 10 through 19. I'm just going to go ahead and tell you up front in this message, this is a tricky one for me because I might go back and forth between calling him Saul and calling him Paul, uh, right? Because the text calls him Saul, but later after Acts 13, we know him as the Apostle Paul. And I'm just going to be honest, I'm already bad about getting my kids' names wrong, so I'm probably going to mess this up. Uh, but I'll try to stick with Saul as much as I can in the text. Uh, but you guys know, if we say Saul or Paul, we're talking about the same guy, right? Let's go ahead and jump in. 
Jesus confronts Saul, verse 1. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Let's just stop right there for a moment. So we have this man, Saul, who we met a few chapters ago when when Stephen was on trial. And this man, Saul, was the one who oversaw the execution, the, the martyr of Stephen. He heard Stephen's powerful message, and then he approved of the death of the stoning of Stephen. And from this moment, Saul has made it his mission to bring against the church persecution. And it's increasing. It says that he is breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. He really despises the Christian movement. To the point that not only does he want to imprison Christians in Jerusalem, but that he's willing to travel all the way from Jerusalem to like modern-day Syria to Damascus to arrest those who are following the way. Now, that term, the way, was, was a way that they described the early Christian movement, those who were followers of Jesus. And most likely, it probably came from Jesus' teaching himself in John 14, where Jesus says that I am the way, the truth, and the life, reminding us that the central theme of the early Christian movement, and even today, is Jesus Christ, that what makes us a Christian is that we believe he is the way. We believe he is the life. We believe he is the only way to salvation. And so he's going after both men and women, and he gets these orders from the high priest, and he's on his way to Damascus, and then something happens. This light from heaven comes down upon him, and he is knocked to the ground. And instead of being able to pursue and arrest Christians in Damascus, the risen Jesus Christ arrests Paul with his presence. Now, I think what's actually knocking Saul down here, perhaps it's not just the blinding light, it's probably not even just the powerful voice of Jesus speaking to him. It's the fact that for the first time, Saul is coming face-to-face on a collision course with the truth about who Jesus is. And that's really the first thing we see here, the truth about who God is. As we think about how Jesus confronts Saul here, and even how he confronts us with truth, how he pursues us, is we have to come to terms with the truth about God, about who he is, about what he's like. And notice what Jesus says. He says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now, that's interesting that he would say that to Saul. Why are you persecuting me? I'm sure Saul in the moment is probably thinking, how can I be persecuting you? Like, your voice is coming from heaven. I'm persecuting them. I'm not persecuting you. And Jesus says, no, you are, because uh, I am Jesus and you are persecuting me. What is he saying there? Jesus is reminding us a, a really important theme in the New Testament, that when the church was persecuted, they were persecuting Jesus because we are united to his body. You see, as the church, we're not just individually reconciled to Jesus. We are united to a community of people, the church. And it's an important lesson for us to stop here and pause and remind ourselves that the Christian life is not one to live in isolation. Jesus reminds us here in this very simple statement that our lives are attached to Jesus. What links us together here today, what what we have in common is Jesus Christ. He brings us together as his body. To say another way, to, to love 
Jesus is to love his church. There's no separation there. Just like to persecute the church was to persecute Jesus. And that's why he would go on, Jesus would say, and, and, and Paul later would write that Jesus calls the church his bride. Right? It doesn't make sense to say, I love Jesus, but I hate his bride. Just like it wouldn't make any sense for any of you to come up to me after the service and say, Wesley, I'd love to take you out to dinner, but I don't like your wife, Abby, so just leave her behind. Right? Like, if you said that, we got problems, man. Like, like big problems. You don't know me if you think that, that you wouldn't like my bride, right? And the same is true for us in the church. That to say that we would love Jesus and hate his church doesn't make any sense because Jesus has redeemed us to be a part of his body. Yes, it's imperfect. Yes, it's messy sometimes, but Jesus loves us and he loves that mess because it's his bride and we're called to be a part of it together. But notice Saul's response to this question. He says, who are you, Lord? Who are you? Who, who is this that is speaking to me with such authority? You see, in this moment, Saul is having this head-on collision with the God he thought he knew, but he had missed it. Saul knew of a God, but it was a God that he had constructed in his mind, a God he wanted, a God he thought he knew, but it wasn't the God of reality who's pursuing him in this moment. And we just like Saul do the same thing, don't we? For most people in Washington, D.C., who I've talked to, I've experienced, uh, who believe in a God, they would say, I believe in a God, but I believe in a God who accepts who I am. And what they're saying there is, I believe in a God of acceptance. I believe in a God who accepts what I think is worth accepting. A, A God that I can control. A God that I can create. But there's a problem with that. That if it's a God that we create, if it's a God that we can construct, if it's a God that we can control, then that God cannot help us. That God cannot change us. That God cannot lift us up. That God cannot make us more than we are today. That God cannot transform us. It can't change us because that God is not greater than our hearts. It is a construct of our hearts. And what we need more than anything is the same thing that is happening here as Saul as he's experiencing the God of reality pursuing him, the God of all truth pursuing him, the Savior of the world, Jesus Christ, the God who is greater than our hearts and the only one who can change our hearts. And if we need anything today, it's this, that we would not serve a God that we can produce, a God that we can control, but the risen Savior, Jesus Christ, the one who is truth. But notice as the text continues, Saul's not only wrestling with the truth about God in this moment as he's blinded on the road to Damascus, he's also wrestling with the truth about himself. Look at verse 7. It says, The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, neither ate nor drank. Notice the personal nature of how God pursues us here. What's happening here is that God is pursuing Saul, and the people who are with him, they're encountering the same things, but they don't hear the voice of God. And maybe you've experienced this with friends before. Maybe you've sat down with friends and you've read the exact same books. You've heard the exact same messages preached. Uh, You've had the exact same questions, but it's just noise to them. But for you, you've heard the voice of God speak directly to you. And here we see that Saul is hearing God's voice speak to him. And he's on the ground. And what happens next is not an immediate change. Notice he doesn't just get up immediately and begin to talk about Jesus to other people. 
That's not the immediate reaction. In fact, what happens is Jesus plunges him into darkness. In this moment, as he is on the ground contemplating who God is and rethinking his whole worldview of who he is, Jesus plunges him into darkness. He's blinded. He's instructed just to go into a city and wait for three days, blinded, didn't eat, didn't drink. Now, why the blindness here? Why did Jesus blind Saul? Well, perhaps it's to get across the fact that he was spiritually blind. And so Jesus is saying, well, hey, I want you to to know, Saul, that you've been spiritually blind, therefore I'm going to make you physically blind for a few days. But I think it's even deeper than that. Because what happens when someone is, is immediately blinded like this? And the text says he didn't eat or drink, he couldn't read, he was sitting by himself. He couldn't go on as life as usual. And here we find for three days, Saul is sitting with his own thoughts, a time of reflection. You see, it's in the darkness that Saul begins to contemplate everything he once knew about who God was and who he is. I can imagine the, uh, the Apostle Paul, then Saul, sitting there and questioning, I thought I knew what I knew about God. So much so that I was willing to make it my, my passionate calling to persecute Christians because they had got it wrong. Because they had got it wrong. You see, the Messiah, for, for a, a Pharisee like Saul, and a Pharisee was just a religious teacher, for, for the Messiah to come and to hang on a tree and cry out to the Lord, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That was unfathomable for, for Saul. Because the, the Old Testament says that curse is the one who hangs on a tree, right? And the Messiah is supposed to be blessed and loved by God and chosen by God. How can the Messiah be cursed on a tree? How can the Messiah hang on the cross and be abandoned by God? Surely Jesus could not be the Messiah. But now Jesus, in his resurrected form, has pursued Saul, and everything is changing. Saul is now questioning, well, I've experienced Jesus resurrected from the dead. Therefore, if I've experienced the real Jesus, he must have been vindicated by God. He must have been chosen by God. He must have been loved by God. Then what happened on the cross? Well, on the cross, he wasn't cursed for his own sins. He wasn't abandoned because of his own sins. He must have been abandoned and cursed because of the sins of another, because of our sins. You see, it begins to click for Saul. That the Messiah didn't come in strength just to save those who were strong and those who were good. The Messiah came as a servant to save to save those who are strong enough to admit that they're weak. Those who are willing to admit that they are moral failures. Those who are willing to admit that they need a savior. And in Acts 26, uh, Paul, he's recounting this story. He adds a line to uh, this text here as he's recounting this story to another audience. He says this in Acts 26, 14. He says again, Jesus spoke to him and says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And then he adds this line, it's hard for you to kick against the goads. Now I'm assuming, I'm going to make an assumption here, God on a limb, that you don't use that phrase, kicking against the goads, very often in your daily life, right? Your boss probably didn't come to you this week and say, why are you still kicking against the goads, right? That's probably not what he said to you. Now a goad was this sharp stick that used by shepherds would, would prod sheep to get them in the right direction. It was meant to inflict pain. It was meant to hurt. Uh, a goad was not something that was like a pat on the back. It was there to stick someone to get them to go in the right direction. Because I don't know if you know much about sheep. I certainly don't. But what I do know is they look cute and cuddly, but they're pretty stupid. 
They just are. They're not smart, right? Like if, if they want food and the food's that direction and there's a cliff, they're going to go off the cliff for the food, right? They just don't make the wisest decisions. So a shepherd has to think what's best for the sheep. So they prod the sheep with the goat. They stick the sheep with the goat to get them to go in the right direction. And Jesus here comes with this question. It's hard. He says, it's hard for you to kick against the goats. What are the things that are prodding Saul in this moment? What are the things that perhaps were prodding him uh, to, to turn to Jesus? Maybe it was Stephen. Maybe it was the fact that he's now in darkness questioning the, the forgiveness of Stephen and his message. Maybe it was the fact that, that Christians that he was persecuting were dying so willingly for the faith. Maybe it was that Saul himself had unanswered questions about Jesus and he couldn't just figure it out. You see, what's happening in this moment, this poking, this prodding, is that Saul and everything he thought he knew about himself was becoming unraveled before Jesus. He would even say later in Philippians chapter 3 that this was true, that he thought he had it all figured out, that everything about him was so great, and then he realized he missed it because he missed his need for Jesus. And Saul's story here is a story for all of us because we're all spiritually blind in some way, right? Because before we come to Jesus, we're all spiritually blind in some way. Perhaps our spiritual blindness is that we think we know better than God. Perhaps our spiritual blindness is that we think we can live life in a better manner than what God has for us. But then we get to a point in life where it's just discontent, whereas we're not happy, whereas we've had a string of broken relationships that have never satisfied, and we realize the whole time God was not our enemy. He was our friend. But perhaps our spiritual blindness is like Saul's here, which I believe is more of a, a religious blindness, a blindness in thinking that he was actually good, a blindness that, that what he did and what he performed actually made him worthy to God, a blindness that led him to think that he was accepted because of what he was doing for God, not because of what was actually happening in his heart. And this is really my story as well. See, much like Saul, I, I grew up thinking that I knew God. I grew up thinking that he was pleased with the outward workings of my faith. I, I thought he was pleased with the things that I was doing. I thought he was pleased that I wasn't as bad as my hellish brother at the time, right? And all the time, those good deeds, the outworking of what I thought was a good thing, was nothing more than self-justification for myself. The good things that I was doing, the pursuit of goodness and morality, were doing nothing more than covering up what was actually happening in my heart. You know what kind of life that leads to? It leads to a life of weariness and constant comparison. How are you measuring up today? How are you doing compared to others? And on good days, that would lead me to feel very prideful about myself. But on bad days, it would lead me to despair. And that cycle of pride and despair would lead me to, to have jealousy for others, and that jealousy would, would fill my heart with rage and anger, similar to Saul and how he's acting against other Christians. Perhaps you don't struggle with that. Perhaps your identity is not wrapped up in compliance to the Mosaic law like Saul, but maybe it's wrapped up in your achievements, your ambition. You find your worth, you find life in what you can accomplish, what others think of you. What does it say of you? What your job title says about you? And the best thing that God can possibly do for us is the same thing he did for Saul here, to allow it all to unravel. Because it's going to unravel at some point in life. When we build our lives on anything other than Jesus, it will unravel. 
But Saul here, because of God's grace, finds himself on his knees experiencing the truth of who Jesus is and his need for Jesus. And the same happened to me. I was on my knees not because of I was going to persecute Christians, but after a workout, realizing my life was heading in a dangerous direction. And God was prodding me the whole time to realize that what I needed was him. That's what's happening in the darkness for Saul. He's rethinking who he is, he's rethinking his identity, and he's realizing, I can't keep this up, I can't earn my own salvation, I am not competent to live my life on my own, I cannot keep going in this direction, I need a savior. He was humbled. He realized he couldn't save himself. He was right on the brink, and God met him in his need. You see, the rest of the story here is that God does not leave him in darkness, but Jesus not only confronts him with the truth, but he commissions Saul. Let's pick up at verse 10. Now, there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And this is not the same Ananias we heard about in Acts chapter 5. This man is a faithful disciple. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. Now, I don't want us to skip over this. We could easily skip over this and think, well, of course Saul is praying, right? Like Saul, you just said he was a Pharisee. And didn't they pray like seven times a day? So of course Saul would be praying here. But notice what's happening. This is a, this is a sign of a life changed by Jesus. Saul's not just praying out of habit of praying. He's praying because of the first time he's experiencing intimacy with God. You see, Jesus warns us in the Sermon on the Mount. He says that the religious leaders of the day, they would stand on the street corners and pray so that others would hear them. Right? It's almost as if our relationship with God through prayer is like this uh, business transaction. You know, like He's our boss. Like, hey, Jesus, I'll pray seven times a day. You give me this, right? Like, I do this, you do that. But that's not real prayer. Prayer is when we commune with the Father that we know loves us. Prayer is when we go to the Father and we realize we can go to him because he looks at us and says, you are my daughter, you are my son. And I believe this is the first time that Saul is experiencing that intimacy. He is praying knowing who Jesus is. He is praying knowing that who he is and his need for Jesus. And he's going to the Father and he's communing with God. It's an encouragement for all of us that we can have that level of intimacy with God now. That through Jesus Christ, we can commune with God through prayer. We can know him personally and he knows us personally through his love. And then in verse 12, he says that he has seen a vision of a man named Ananias. Come in and lay hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. Now, this is a really hard task for, for Ananias, right? I mean, I can imagine Ananias saying like, uh, Wait a second, Jesus. For a minute there, I thought you said Saul of Tarsus, right? You don't, you don't mean that guy. Jesus like, yeah, that's the one. Like, that's the one you need to go to. Uh, that's like if, if Jesus were to come to us today and say, um, hey, I got a guy I want you to meet on the street corner by the 7-Eleven. Go pick him up, uh, take him to church, take him to your house. Uh, his name is Kim Jong-un. He's a big guy with a really bad haircut. Go, go, um, go you can't miss him, right? Like, we would say, no, what? are you kidding me, Jesus? And here Ananias is given this incredibly hard task to go and pursue this man, Saul, the one who was probably coming to arrest him. And then verse 15, it says, But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. 
So Ananias departed, and he entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. So we see that Saul has been waiting in darkness, and this faithful disciple of the Lord, Ananias, goes to him, and he lays his hands on Saul. And in the process of doing this, Saul receives the Holy Spirit, he receives his sight, he receives a new identity, and receives a new community through baptism. This man who was once one of the greatest enemies of the gospel is now a member of Jesus' church. He was once blind, and now he sees. He understands who he is in Christ for the very first time. And I think there's some things that we can learn from this commissioning of Saul by Jesus that apply to all of our lives. The first is this, that our past does not disqualify us from God's grace. Your past, my past, does not disqualify us from God's grace. Saul was a murderer. His conversion scandalized Ananias and the church. So much so that Jesus had to emphatically tell Ananias, I know who he is, and I'm telling you to go because he is a chosen instrument of mine. See, grace is scandalous. I think of uh, the story of John Newton. If you don't know who John Newton is, he's the one who wrote the song Amazing Grace. He was formerly a slave trader. He ran a slave ship. In one of his biographies, John Newton talks about that after he came to faith in Christ, every time he saw a ship, it didn't even matter if it was a slave ship, every time he saw a ship, he thought of the horror of, and shame of what he did. He couldn't escape it. He couldn't imagine that I did that voluntarily. I did it willingly. I did it because I wanted money. And he says he he just could not fathom that that was me. I did that. And that's what led him to add the line to the song, Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound, that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. Here's the thing John Newton understood. That if we don't understand the wretch that we are, God's grace will never be amazing. If we don't understand that that is us, then we will never understand the amazement of God's grace. You see, there are two things that really are are hard and difficult sometimes to believe about the Christian message. One is that we are so sick in our sins that Jesus had to die for us. But the other is that he is so gracious and loving that he did it willingly. That he gladly laid down his life for us. And here we see in this story that Ananias, he, he goes and he lays hands on Saul and he says, brother. Now, maybe you've never had someone lay hands on you before. Uh, I just want to let you know, it's not weird. It's not like, it's, it's not some like magical thing. Like I, I can pray for you without laying hands on you, but there is something that I think is, is sweet about this moment. There's something I think that this moment is teaching us about the character of God. As Ananias lays hands on Saul, it's as if he's saying, I'm with you. For the first time, he is identifying himself with Saul. Love for Saul is being communicated. An embrace of Saul is being communicated. And Ananias is not uninformed. He knows precisely who Saul is. He knows all that Saul has done. He probably recognizes that Saul was coming to arrest him. And I would assume he was probably scared at first to go to Saul. But Ananias understands grace. He understands the gospel. He understands that it doesn't matter 
what Saul has done in his past, because if the Messiah came to save those who can admit that they are failures, that means that anyone, anyone, including Saul, can come and have their sins forgiven because Jesus died on the cross for him. It doesn't matter his past. It doesn't matter what he's done. Ananias at this moment understands that God's grace is sufficient for people just like Saul. And Ananias comes and he, he puts his hands on Saul and he calls him brother. And it's as if God in this moment is saying to Saul, you can rest in my arms. It doesn't matter what you've done. You're mine. You're my chosen instrument now. You are my son Faith, the response of faith is simply that. It, it, is, it is trusting in the arms of God. It is placing our lives in his hands. It is saying that no matter what I've done in life, no matter what I've, I've said or done in this life, God's grace can meet me in my need. I can experience the embrace of God. No matter what my past is, Jesus can embrace us with his grace. And if Jesus can save Saul, the murderer, he could save John Newton, the slave trader, then he can save any one of us in this room because none of us are too far gone for God's amazing grace. But not only does our past not disqualify us from his grace, it also does not qualify, disqualify us from being used by God. See, Saul's not just experiencing the grace of God in this moment. He is being used by God. In verse 15, Jesus says, Go, Ananias, because this man, he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. How incredible is this, that God took the greatest enemy of the early church with the blood of God's saints on his hands and put him before kings with the message of God's grace on his lips. How incredible. Saul was once one of the greatest enemies, becomes one of the greatest missionaries of the church. And here's one of the great mysteries of the Christian faith, that no matter how bad we might think we are, no matter how far we might think we have gone, through God's grace, he can use us in greater ways than we can ever imagine. God wants to take, and he does take our brokenness, just like he did in Saul's life. He embraces us, he redeems us, and he uses it for his glory. Sometimes I know we feel disqualified to be used by God. Maybe it's some horrible, embarrassing mistake you've made in your past. Maybe it's that you're in a bad relationship and you know it. Maybe it's that you're fighting a struggle in life. If you say, Wesley, if you only knew what I was going through, you would never want to get close to me. And the gospel here reminds us that no matter how bad we think we are, God can use us in his grace. That even when we feel the weight of sin, we can run to God and he embraces us with his love and grace and he sets our feet on the firm foundation of Christ and he chooses to use us with all of our messiness, with all of our brokenness, with all of our hurts, with all of our past. In fact, all the struggles of your life, the mistakes you've made are the very things that God can use and intends to use as an instrument of redemption. Uh, Paul later would write this in, in 2 Corinthians and say it this way, may we be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Meaning this, we can comfort others because we know what it looks like to be comforted in Jesus. We can comfort others who are going through unique, similar situations that we've gone through because we know the embrace of God's grace in our lives. And precisely, he has saved you and rescued you from circumstances that he has rescued you from so that you can better help those people going through the exact same things. 
He has things in your story that he has woven in your life that are ugly, that are, that are messy, that are sufferings, so that you can help others who are going through the exact same thing feel the comfort and embrace of God. The very things that might seem like they disqualify you are the things that uniquely qualify you to be used as an instrument of redemption in the life of others. God used Saul, a murderer, a man who was after his people, to speak to kings and to thousands of the people of Israel and Gentiles in the Roman Empire. And he can use us in the very same way. Now as we come to our time of the Lord's Supper, I just want us to reflect on this for a minute. Just like Saul was in darkness reflecting, have we lost the wonder of God's grace today? Do we understand just how amazing God's grace is to us? Is there someone in our life right now that just like Saul is so far gone, but that we've quit praying for them because we thought God's grace can't reach them? You know, sometimes I, I, I can admit to you as a, as a pastor in this city, it's not that I lack vision for what this church can, can be. It's sometimes that I just lack belief that God can do it. But God's amazing grace reminds us here that no one is beyond his reach. Is he pursuing you today? See, the good news is you don't have to pick yourself off from the road, dust yourself off, and do it your own way. For Jesus didn't come and, and, and fall down on a dusty road to Damascus. Jesus came and sacrificed his life on the cross for you. He wasn't just plunged in, into three days of blindness on the cross. He was plunged into darkness for you. But the story doesn't end. Through his resurrection, we can have life. If we believe in Jesus today, you can have life. If you believe in Jesus today, you can experience the, the embrace of God's love and forgiveness in your life. As we come to the Lord's table, his message is simply this, come, all who are burdened, heavy laden, he'll give you rest. Thank you for listening to this episode of King's Church DC podcast. If this sermon encouraged you, please like, rate, and subscribe to our podcast. For more information on our church and service times, please visit kingschurchdc.com. We hope you will join us again next week.